0: I think you could talk to almost any scientist and they'll point to one mentor who really pushed them and really made science more than something that was just out of a textbook and made it exciting, made it something that they wanted to pursue.
1: I think about being a young child and not going to that many museums, only going to one and not feeling comfortable. And what that meant for me, if I'm thinking about what I would like to see as I was growing up, it's artists who look like me.
2: Welcome to our shared field, where we bring artists into conversation with people from outside of the arts. I'm your host, Austin Camille, and you're listening to the last part of the conversation we began two weeks ago between artist Charles Trey Mason III and microbiologist and immunologist Alexandra Soiré. Today, Alexandra and Trey talk with me about the relationship between art and science and how both fields still have a long way to go in their ability to communicate outside of themselves. We also discuss the necessity of a good mentor and acknowledge those who changed and expanded the ways they work. Alex and Trey are the first guests on this podcast who actually knew each other before coming to the conversation. Trey had nominated Alexandra as a guest, and she had suggested Trey as a collaborator for her conversation. They begin by talking about their friendship.
1: Both being in the city of Baltimore allows for a lot of connecting thoughts to happen within the field of medicine and science and art because they kind of overlap in so many different ways. But I think it it kind of just happened really, like out of conversation, you know, my curiosity into like science and um, what Alex is doing and does do, and uh, her curiosity, I think, in what I do as an artist. Um, and they were like similar, not similar backgrounds, but she understood art from a different way that most folks that I meet don't, which is interesting in its own right.
0: Yeah, I do remember basically from the beginning of our friendship, even though we approached things differently I think what drove us was very similar how we approached things that was uncomfortable that was outside our normal realm was also similar in the sense that it was with like that same sort of curiosity Um, I think Trey might be he might be my the only one of my friends that is a visual artist I do remember like from the very beginning of our friendship we were both very like I feel like we addressed a lot we talked about a lot of heavy topics that is pertinent to both of our fields but maybe doesn't get discussed enough
2: yeah, I think just from having the individual conversations with each of you, there's definitely, there, there were a lot of crossovers that were coming <laughs> up. Um, one of the things I, that was really striking was the focus on for each of you how your fields are or are not, you know, participating in, supporting, serving uh, the larger communities that exist outside of them. Yeah, I wonder if we could start here with this need that you each seem to feel to push your fields out into other spaces.
0: I know in the science field, people tend to get very tunnel vision about what they approach and not understand like the full scope of things beyond like our specialty. And for me, like that can not only be detrimental to science, but it also I think it's detrimental to like how our science is applied to the public. You know, we we look at things through this one scope, through this one viewpoint of, like, just need to get, like, this experiment or just need to get this paper published or just need to, like, prove this theory without an understanding of how this applies to a bigger picture. I think, I do think that's getting better now. A lot of younger scientists are starting to look beyond, like, just being in the lab. Like, you know, how do we help the community in the space that we occupy? You know, thinking of in Baltimore, uh, my school, for example, it's, like, relatively close to the west side of Baltimore. And there's a lot of, I think, with a lot of students now, more if it's like, OK, we occupy space in these neighborhoods. How, what are some ways we can you know, give back to the space that we occupy?
1: When thinking about community in any particular field, it's something hard to do as artists. And I think we're like the first coming of gentrification. And we don't always realize that we're the participant in it. And so we're in these systems and structures, right? And I would never argue and say that all artists care about all things happening to all communities. It's just impossible. Mm-hmm. But I think I can kind of contend with that because I don't know how you could think about it and not do that. Um, Because I'm very aware of the groups of people who I look toward, who did something as simple as putting a friend in a show, who have given back, who have done many things for the community. And I think if I'm thinking about what I would like to see as I was growing up, it's like artists who look like me. And so I'm always kind of thinking about how community plays a role in the work, but not necessarily community being the focus of the work and thinking about ways for me to help with access to it. And so I think about as being a young child and not going to that many museums, only going to one and not feeling comfortable in these museums and what that meant for me. And I kind of think about who is allowed to have something, who is allowed to be a participant in something. And that's where I kind of look at it. And that's part of why I give work away. I say that to say that like giving is a part of how I interact with community community.
2: Do you think there's something like like a similar process for you, Alex? Is there a way that you're also able to kind of do this giving outward action in your field?
0: There has been, I think, increased awareness, or at least within some of my circles, as far as making science accessible and making it and doing so in an equitable way. I think we all real. I think any scientist realize the importance of having a good mentor, having a good figure involved. I think you could talk to almost any scientist and they'll pinpoint to one mentor or one teacher who really pushed them and really made science more than something that was just out of a textbook and made it exciting, made it something that they wanted to pursue. Like no one, and there's no scientist that was like, oh yeah, I became a scientist because like, I read this, you know, I read this paragraph about like DNA structure in the textbook. And I was like, yeah, that's great. Because a lot of times, like I experienced this too. Like when I was in school from elementary school all the way to high school, I had no interest in science. It was just something boring. And you see, I think you see that a lot in areas where education is not well-funded. You know, teachers, they are very overworked and like make and doing something like making science or like getting like a good setup for an experiment for kids or something like that. That's expensive. And so that's not always something that a lot of places have. And so I guess for a lot of scientists, like being being able to provide some sort of excitement or something to make it real life, something to take it out of a textbook and make it relatable and something that is that they that a student, a a child can see themselves doing.
2: Yeah. So there's going back to the idea of of mentorship and how important it's obviously been for each of you, you know, that neither of you would actually be where you are right now without good mentors. What makes a what makes a good mentor for you?
0: Having a good mentor is someone who understands Who understands and appreciates your failures and appreciates the capacity to come back from them. I think in science, like the word failure tends to be viewed so negatively, which is funny because science, like most of the time, science is failures. And I think understanding that like you're more than the sum of your experiments. Because it can be kind of cutthroat sometimes, it can be very competitive. Also opening as many doors as possible for them, you know, acknowledging the contributions they made to the work and helping them you know not just remain stagnant in their career because that happens a lot in science as far as like you know these mentors will take a well not yeah they'll take advantage of like a student's or even a postdoc's work and and so i think for me a mentor is someone who helps their mentee rise above that stagnancy
2: Mm -hmm.
1: i think part of the reason why uh, mentorship was like so important for me is because i went to white institutions And so at UMBC, all my mentors were like white folks, which were great. They were great people, you know, they were, but they acknowledged their uh, limitations to like understanding who I am as a person. But mentorship wasn't something that I always knew about. It was something that like, it was trial and error. It was something that I always learned about. And so once I graduated from UMBC, it became apparent to me that I needed to make sure that I found me some Black mentors. Um, I sought them out because they filled a gap that that was there for a long time. Um, some of them felt like uncles and like father figures in my life, like, like I utterly respect to the point. Like they told me to do something right now, I do it. And to me, that's just showing uh, like a sense of respect for these people who take time out to even have a conversation with me, uh, lend an ear to me. They check in on me. They show, like, some of them teach me how to be a better person. Some of them teach me how to be a better man. It's, like, all-encompassing. And it almost never relates to the art, but all of them are mm. artists. And so I was always looking. There, there are people who I would claim as mentors who probably wouldn't consider themselves my mentor. Mm.
0: Um,
1: and they could be a year older than me. They can be the same age as me
0: do you consider some of your peers, your mentors? Mm. Yeah. Cause you're talking about like how you had like some mentors that like make you like, doesn't really matter how old they are. Like they could be one yeah. year older. So I was curious. Cause thinking about like how you were defining that, like I could, maybe not in a traditional sense, but like, mm. I know from, I know the peers I have right now in grad school, like they not only make me a better scientist, they make me a better person. And, and I, and like, I wouldn't maybe use the word mentor for that, but like, mm. you know, they do, but they, but they push me. And they help me improve in the same way a good mentor would.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so no. Just kind of going back to this idea of accessibility, I feel like language is a huge part of that. And that, that was something that you and I had talked about, Alex, but less, less so you and I, Trey. I have a lot of conversations about this idea of art speak being inaccessible mm-hmm. and pretentious. And, mm-hmm. and I know, like, Alex, you and I had talked about the inaccessibility of science language and how it just the general public has no idea what it is that is being (laughs) talked about. Yeah, I'm curious to hear more maybe about how you guys are thinking about language, how you connect that outwards to accessibility, community.
0: In a science education, you never learn how to take your science and speak it to the public. That's something that a lot of scientists learn just through experience. Mm -hmm. Remove myself from my knowledge and remove remove myself from my situation. What would I want to know if I was worried about something? What are things that could be said to me to ease whatever questions I have, ease whatever tension I have in order to understand this thing that's very important to me? I think that's something that scientists don't have a lot of experience in doing and put ourselves back to the beginning, put ourselves back to where we were before we started all this.
1: I just, it's hard to do it without experience, like Alex is saying, right? Because the only way we realize what we're saying is like bull sometimes is by talking to someone that has no background in that particular field. Mm. And they're looking at you like, what are you saying? And you're like, oh. What am I saying? But I try to move through spaces and be as genuinely myself as possible. And so, for instance, there were a lot of words that when I got to art school, I didn't know. I was like in the round, essentially being a word that you can walk around.
2: Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah.
1: I'm like, what are you talking about? Just say the word, you can walk around the word. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Like uh, di- everyone loves didactic, something teaching you something, but most work isn't that, you know? And if it is, people, you don't even know what they're teaching you. And so there are a lot of words that we go through in art school that I think even our professors don't realize they're doing because it's just, that's the, that's the, that's the place. That's the place where they turn on that performance. Yeah. Right. If it was up to me, I would talk the same way all the time, but no one would know what I was talking about unless they had a reference to my culture or my identity in some way. Cause like, as soon as you're in a room with a bunch of critics it changes. As soon as you're in the room with a bunch of your peers, it changes. As soon as you're outside of this institution, it changes. Like that means you're going through at least three different phases of labor. And the labor is you trying to fit in or be accepted through the ways in which you talk.
0: Right. It's so funny that you said that like, you know, your professors would talk would like say these certain words and you entering the field had no idea what what that meant because the exact same thing happened to me when I first started science. Mm -hmm. I, when I was in new Orleans, I worked in this lab. We were, we, we were using mice for the, for these studies and we, and it was the end of the study. So you have to euthanize the mice and, you know, you analyze the organs. But I remember it was like my second day of work and the boss comes up to me and she's like, oh, we need your help with the mice sack tomorrow. I didn't know this at the time, but SAC was was short for sacrifice. Like, that's just like, you know, what you, they, they would say in, oh you know, when no. a, in these instances of euthanization yeah. and, I, and, she, and I was like, "SAC, like, what are you talking about? She's like, the, the sacrifice tomorrow. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, this voodoo stuff is really normal. <laughs> <laughs> that was, like, that was like the first thing I thought of. down there, But yeah, like that happens all the time. It's funny. Like there's different language associated with different fields too. So like, I don't know if you experienced that in the art world, but in the science world, like the words, the, the languages I use in like the microbiology and immunology field are different than someone who would study like biochemistry or, and that like, you know, like they all different. But like, I, I think the, be, the best example of overcoming those language barriers, like right now during the COVID pandemic, we've had so many instances where things get disputed or like they get, or things get lost in translation.
2: The topic of accessibility led us to discuss where art and science as broad fields might actually be able to help each other out in issues of communication.
1: In the perfect world, artists and art and science would go, literally go hand in hand. A scientist looks at the world in general in a different way than the artist, and I think we need both of those. It's almost as, it's like literally breaking down to left brain, right brain, right? I think the only way that good work happens for an artist is to research. And for a scientist, your work is research that you then, you know, turn into papers, experiments and things like that. And I think that's the middle ground with research, right? Part of the reason why... Um, there's such a disconnect in language and access with these things, is because I honestly think artists should take science classes, and I think science students should take art classes.
0: I completely agree. You have to be able to think broader, you have to think bigger, and there is a lot, and there is a lot to benefit from doing something that's outside your comfort zone.
1: And I agree. I, like I'm not really a fan of full-on art institutions, mm-hmm. but like art schools are starting to be a little bit more liberal arts because they're mm-hmm. realizing that they need more to make art. Like, it's not just about how good you can draw a line. Like, yeah. it's about learning science, learning psychology. Like, what is color theory? I never take a color theory class, but what is color theory? Color I theory you, is, you
0: tell me that. I don't know what like, color theory
1: is. But <laughs> I understand the basis of it is yeah. psychology. It's like, what, does he, what do these colors mean and how do they like affect people, affect you in that's psychology, that's science. That's looking at how these interact with people. So they need to do better jobs at this.
0: Trey, did I ever tell you about um, how one of my classes when I was at Tulane was basically painting parasites? When I was getting my master's degree at Tulane, the department literally bought us watercolor pencils and paintbrush and the sketchbook. And part of our grade was actually like painting these parasites or painting these fungi. Mm And I remember the professor being like, I I don't care about you know the quality of this, but this is this is more so to help you at least, you know, conceptualize these different organisms because there's so many Mm -hmm. of them. And you know, at least get like into the habit of drawing them out can help you like remember them because you're going to see so many of these. And it helped actually a lot when I started like studying fungi, remembering like certain structures and all that kind of stuff.
1: I do that with my art history class. They do an abstract drawing. Part of the way in which to think about art is you think about it from the perspective of someone making it. So part of it was to record each day uh, the time, what they were thinking about, what they were listening to, who they were talking to or whatever, and to make a mark on this paper each day for two weeks. And so it's just really conceptualizing ideas and not worrying about them being rendered <laughs> in any particular way. I think this is one of the things that art allows that science doesn't always allow because there's just a certain level of commitment you have to give to science that you don't always have to necessarily give right away to art. Like no one's going into like physics saying, oh, I'm just taking this for Diggles. They're like, <laughs> I gotta give a commitment to it to understand physics.
2: Since the guests on this podcast have the option to participate in the creation of a project together, Alex and Trey wanted to continue exploring the links between their fields and think through some ways in which their work could actually intersect.
1: I was trying to figure out ways, I've been thinking about ways in which art and science can relate in um, conversation and how to like uh, demystify mm-hmm. uh, science in a way, because I think there's like... I think that's part of the system, right? To make it seem like we can't understand science Mm -hmm. um, unless you're directly in it. And same with art sometimes. And so I've been thinking about what that meant. I just think there's, there's, there needs to be something that allows us to, I'm not trying to get people to like all of a sudden trust science and Mm -hmm. trust like doctors and stuff like that. There's a lot of reasons why black and brown people don't, we could go down the list list of many reasons why they don't. And I'm, I think I'm more interested as to why people are mad at people for distrusting doctors more than anything. But I've really been thinking about the images that we see of doctors and I'm thinking about taking pictures of you in particular and scientists in particular. But I'm like, that's like not trivial, but I've seen it, but I haven't seen it in the way that I'm conceiving it. Like I've seen people take pictures of doctors and scientists. They all glammed up and it looks beautiful.
0: <laughs> in our lab coats that we yeah, actually never, that yeah. we actually never wear.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? There, there's yeah. something really like that still needs to happen because uh-huh. I think that allows people to see like, oh, you can still be beautiful. You can still be like who you are. You can still have your character and and exist within these structures. I think that still needs to happen.
0: Is it like you you mean like showing that a scientist or a doctor is more than just the coat they wear? It's more than just like what, whatever field is like. We do have these activities and these passions and these concerns that, for lack of a better word, normalize us.
1: Yeah, so that was my first start, uh-huh. normalizing uh,
0: yeah.
1: a scientist or yeah. science.
0: I think that a lot of people just perceive us as characters from Big Bang Theory. Like, that's just, you know. <laughs> Listen, I like that show a lot. But, <laughs> but we're not like, I'm sorry, do I repeat? No. Actually, I don't want well to know the answer to this. I was going to ask you if I remind you of any of those characters. <laughs> no, sure no, 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 you're way, be- you're,
1: you're way better. But that's oh. also like like Grey's Anatomy, right? Mm. Everyone thinks oh, yeah. These are like Grey's Anatomy. Like, I think I don't want to romanticize
2: mm-hmm. a
1: scientist anymore. Like, I don't, gotcha. I, want, I don't want to romanticize it, but I don't want to, like, take away the essence of who you are as a person.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But it looks like it's going to be in a 2D form. I've been thinking about it. I, I haven't necessarily been talking about it because I'm still trying to find the words for it. But I've been thinking about it. And maybe it is just taking images and, like, bad images, good images, like, just images, spending a day. Having a few um, disposable cameras, Ooh. you can't correct like film. You know what I mean. It is what it is. Like film is very much a matter of fact thing.
0: So earlier you're talking about how there are things that like there there's still parts of science that are like I guess mystified, especially in like the COVID pandemic. Despite the fact that you know all these doctors and all the scientists are on the news talking about it, it's still there's still like a myste there is still like this mystery behind it. What like what is something specifically that you think needs to be unveiled, like what's something that needs to be like demystified when it comes to science?
1: We're put as, as citizens, we're putting our faith in these structures that were, that were literally built to oppress us. Like we complain and all these other things, but in some, some way or form, we're putting faith in it. And so when the faith is like completely like demolished, we're like, all right, we're done. There's just no more putting faith in these systems. You know what I mean? And that's a good thing, actually, because it requires then everyone to look at it differently and to approach it differently. I don't think scientists are. And to say that we need to do better.
0: Oh no, I agree. No matter how hard you try, you cannot replace an an emotion with a fact. Like you can't do that. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of scientists grapple with that. So they try to like come at you with the facts. They try to tell you this without understanding that there are all these reasons why, you know, someone might not want to take a vaccine. Understanding that we're emotional beings, you know, we're not just like you can give all the facts you want, and that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to listen to it. Like even ourselves, even though we like to think of these, you know, rational, fact-driven people, that's not always the same. Like we're we are we are driven by by emotions. Like we got into a science because of an emotion that it gave us. I don't know how does I don't know how this answers the the art we're gonna do. <laughs> no,
1: it does. It, it, yeah. Like I'm just sitting here thinking. Um, yeah. In my mind, the installation would be a recording of a conversation. And then it would be this work I did of you in some particular way around it. Because there's something to like making something digestible. Because like before pandemic, it wasn't scientists talking to us. Mm -hmm. There weren't doctors going on TV talking to us about what's happening.
0: Do you think there was an interest though? Do you think people would have listened?
1: Honestly, we're at a point where the interest doesn't matter. So I don't know if there necessarily needed to be an interest for it, but I think if you gave it to us, I we would have listened.
0: I, I don't know about that. I do think that like because of the pandemic, I do think that there is. I, I think that now within like the science and the medical world, there is a realization of. Our role as communicators. I, I do think that doctors and scientists now have a more heightened awareness of how their words are perceived. In some, in many instances, how important it is for them to speak to people who need to hear, who need to hear the information, and to make sure that these things, what we say, is tangible, and it is not just you know us say us being like condescending or us just reciting didactic facts. I think a lot of scientists and doctors realized like how much anxiety there was and began working more on, you know, okay, how do we, how do we break this down? I think a lot of scientists and doctors felt, realized that they had a role as a kind of ambassador to Hmm. anyone who wasn't a scientist or a doctor who wasn't familiar with these fields, as far as explaining what was going on, like why, you know. Why did we not have masks before? But now suddenly we're saying, yeah, put your mask on, like not kind of explaining the nature of science that it is evolving. It's never like we never know everything at once. And kind of going back to your point about like demystifying scientists, like we don't hold all the keys to the universe. Mm. You know, we don't like we're human.
1: No, I, I agree with you um, with that. Um, and it makes me think about the hubris you talk about, because I think that, that was that was how scientists were meant to be at some point
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: to be all-knowing and that all-knowing led to more um, more despair to Black and brown communities and to be f- to be fair I think there there was always a need for like people to openly talk about it um, because at least in Black Black sitcoms from the 1990s and early 2000s I remember because I still watch them I go back and watch them I remember certain topics they will always talk about They always talk about HIV and AIDS. They would sometimes talk about rape and they would talk about other things that were directly affecting the black community. Many shows, and I watched white shows, I watched Friends, I watched other shows that didn't have to talk about those things. Black shows always talked about, at least in the 90s and early 2000s, issues directly affecting the black community, dealing with black culture because they needed to because no one was listening anywhere else. Like, like the information just wasn't there for us. Mm -hmm. Like there was no one helping us. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's always been a need for doctors to step up and present to us in a way that is helpful. Um, I don't, there's not a show now. There's not. And we're talking about pop culture because I'm an artist. I I deal directly with pop culture. it's just, you know, everything goes in waves.
2: Both of you independently talked about race and expectations within your field So whether, you know, Alex, you and I talked about worrying about perpetuating stereotypes. And then Trey, you and I talked about, you know, being recognized, tokenized, performing your racial identity as it, you know, suits the needs or trends or whatever of the art world or people who are looking at you and your work. So I'd like to open that up a little bit further here and hear more about where these expectations are coming from, how you're thinking about race as it relates to your field, to your work, what you actually want that relationship to look like?
1: I think we can look at at that in several ways. So the expectation of who you are as a person, and expectations based on who you are from family, society, all these other things, right? There's always an expectation on people of color in general to be the best.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: In some way, some form, there's this expectation. um, Specifically, I can only speak as my, my existence as a Black person to be the very best. Like We can't be average. And so uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about all the artists of color I know um, who are successful or I admire. There's nothing average about them. Right. And then we can look at that count for non-people of color, specifically white folks, and we can see that they had often average art experience. But they've always been in the shows. They've always like done this and that. But it's so much harder. There's always been this need and this expectation for us to go above and beyond, and we have to go above and beyond. There, there's always like these few who get all the love and respect, and then like the ones afterwards, they just get compared to them as if they don't have their own identity mm-hmm. to themselves. Because the only way that people know how to understand that work is through these other folks. We're battling things we don't even know exist mm-hmm. because places and institutions refuse to acknowledge their lack of diversity in people and experiences and in, in identity. It's a very interesting thing to be a person of color at any point in time, at any place in this world that we live in, no matter what. Um, and I think it's very taxing and I think it's very labor intensive.
0: It's interesting you say that because I do, I'm talking to some of my friends who are in science, and they- it's, there's this burden that they describe as far as like, because they are black or because they're brown, they have to do all these extra stuff because, and and it, and it is sold to them on the presence of like, oh, well you have to think of like all the students and all these, all these students who didn't have, you know, a black mentor or something like that. So, you know, you should do, so you should like help out with this thing or you should teach this class without really realizing like the amount of like emotional, mental energy that takes. And they want to, you know, make things better for the next generation, but at the same time, because they are one of the few they have to do all this work to do that and then they get guilted for not if they don't participate like making them do all these things you're also preventing them from like actually being Definitely. a scientist
1: It's like this requirement that we have to, we have to give back and I'm not saying yeah. that we shouldn't you know what I mean I'm not saying but
0: but it's expected of you
1: yeah like honestly and it, that that's even culturally too like it's the expectations that you always give back. Like I had my mentor tells me uh, when young folks used to go off to college, they would get those resources and all that knowledge and come back to their communities. Mm. And then because of that, the community would then grow from that. What ended up happening is they got out and they stayed. But like if you're the only one in the hood and in the community and your family that goes like I'm first generation, completely 100 percent first generation. Like I was told to go to school because that's what I was supposed to do. Not knowing that, like, my parents never even really thought about it. Like, my cousins didn't go. My sisters didn't go. Like, that's, that's on me. It's artists who are, the, like, okay, who get MFAs. Like, you know what I mean? It's not, if you got the money, it don't really matter after a certain point in time. Like, if you have, and that's the thing, you have the equity, Mm-mm. right? But how do you even get that? Through generational wealth? Then how did they get that? Because their parents worked on the railroad, but how did they get that? You know what I mean? If you start unpacking that, you contend with all these things. And no one actually wants to do that work because then it's admitting that they had awful people in their family. But no one is saying because you have that same last name mature just as bad as that racist bigot. But what we are saying is that you have to contend with that information because you are a part of that history, that that family tree of that racist bigot. Like, bro, it's the disease that's passed down. But how long did it take for people to realize that the size of black folks' brains and skulls was the same size as white folks' skulls?
0: Oh my god, that's like I think I talked to you about this as far as like how science, like the way, like recently there was an article, there was an article from a pronounced science journal where it was talking about racism in science and medicine. (laughs) And the caption and like the description of of the article like was doctors aren't racism, but racism exists in healthcare. And it was just like just the sentence were like. Excuse me. <laughs> like, why do you think that just because a doc, like a doctor or as a doctor, doesn't mean they're not racist? Like, Charles Darwin, all these big founders of science and all, and and medicine. These were all brilliant men, yet they still managed to perpetuate these stupid thoughts that let and like use that to rationalize mm-hmm. racism and like makes and, like they basically started like uh, race science. And I don't understand why people now think, okay, if these brilliant men that we look up to can succumb to these ideologies. What's not to say that like, that doesn't linger in my brain. How's that to say like, that might impact like how I treat patients?
1: I think we and you talked about this, Alex, how doctors still till this day as, as recent as 2015 still think that black people can take more pain than others.
0: Do you 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 know know why? Do you know where that, do you know how that stereotype, how that stereotype like started?
1: Uh, I know that there was a lot of tests done on black women without anesthesia, but I don't know.
0: No, 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 it was basically it. It was was, was basically to like rationalize slavery. It was just like, yeah, like, oh, they can handle it. You know, so their their pain tolerance decided they can handle it. That's basically how it started. And it's still to this day, it's like this perception that they have, despite the degrees, despite their education.
1: When we talked about this, um, I think to contend with this, it has to be in the curriculum at this point. I think immediately if we contended with the history of racism and oppression within um, science, a lot would change. But it's still the same methods, for the most part, being used uh, to justify. And like, mm. so there's no way. So this is the same issue. Ooh, I don't even want to bring this up. But this, is the same, <laughs> this is the same issue because I was going to talk about cops. Mm. Right. Like because they're black and brown cops. But that's the same issue. Same with same with science and medicine is the same thing with cops. Black and brown folks get in and say, "All right, we understand it because we are you." You're being taught the wrong thing because no one is questioning. Everyone just wants to be that doctor or wants to be that savior. Everyone wants to be that savior for their community or this that, and the third, but not realizing. Don't get me wrong. There are doctors and stuff who are learning and who know this stuff because they did the history, did the research. But they understood they needed to because in their textbooks, in the way in which they're being taught, it's still the same way that's being perpetuated. Say, like same with cops, the same things are being perpetuated. And yet there's always justification. There's justification, I'm sure, in medical schools and for scientists as to why this hasn't been changed. There's justification in why police arms actually are being militarized and things like that. We know this. If we really cared about everything that we say we cared about, not just us in this like Zoom call, but everyone else, because to us talking about is preaching to a choir that understands systems and knowledge. these. It doesn't really matter at this point. Like I can tell each of you all these things. Y'all can tell me all these things, and it's like, okay, yep, I'm with it. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? It, it, that don't change it though. It's the people who who really think there's nothing out there to be changed. Because if it was, I mean, it, something would be different, right?
2: Join us next week on Our Shared Field for part one of the last conversation of this season between artist Anamaya Farthing-Cole and West Philly block captain Aminata Sandra Calhoun.
0: In Spanish, being the immigrant is like, you're like a, what is it
2: called? You're an
0: uh, extranjero, extranjero, with the root word is extraño, which is weird. And like, I always was like, yeah, that's perfect. Like, I'm like, I'm just have all the liberty to be as weird as I
2: want. You can learn more about the guests and follow their interactions on our website, chat.squarespace.com. Music for this episode was created by Travis Woodson as he was thinking about what an interaction between a painter and a microbiologist could sound like. Thank you to the Center for Humanities at Temple University for hosting this podcast and to our technical director, Eric Carbonara at Not a Sound Studio. This podcast is recorded in North Philadelphia on the ancestral lands of the Lenni-Lenape people, whose presence and resilience in Pennsylvania continues to this day. Until next time, I'm Austin Camille. Thank you for listening to Our Shared Field.